We started 1 Corinthians last week, and Paul has written to the church in Corinth. Uh, Corinth is a, a city that's actually on the north end of the isthmus called Greece. You guys have all probably heard of Greece before. This big, huge peninsula. And uh, in that peninsula, you have uh, all kinds of different cultures, uh, but what you have in there is a lot of paganism, a lot of worshiping of false gods. Uh, you've heard of Zeus, you've heard of Hermes, Aphrodite, some of these mythical gods that get studied in classic literature are actually, they have their origin in this area. So, they, you know, in, in ancient culture, there weren't a such thing as we have today uh, called atheists. There was actually more gods that people worshipped than there are now. Uh, in our culture, we have this uh, kind of weird thing where people all of a sudden are saying, you know, I don't believe that God exists at all. Uh, that wasn't going on in those days. Everybody worshipped some sort of God. And so, here we are in the church in Corinth, and they, in this town, in this city of several uh, tens of thousands of people, some estimate up to 400,000 people in this one city, there were many who worshipped uh, two things, wisdom and pleasure. They worshipped uh, feeling good and, and going for experiences. Uh, and then the other group, they, they worshipped that too, but they also worshipped the gaining of wisdom and knowledge. And so they would sit around and they would just... They were the thinkers of the day. They would, if you've ever seen the statue of the guy that's pondering and he's kind of sitting there and of course he's not wearing any clothes because that's what you do, right? And I think of him as the present day guy that's the philosopher that considers himself very smart and he reads whatever he reads, he reads it on the toilet, you know? <laughs> so no one in here does that, I know. But some people call the, the restroom, they call it the library because that's where they get all their knowledge. Uh, I don't know, I just thought it was funny. So, but what happened is they had a group that worshipped wisdom, and they had a group that worshipped um, pleasure. And so I don't think that there's any church written to in the New Testament that is more like our culture. We seek after pleasure. If we don't feel good, we seek another thing that makes us feel good until that thing lets us down, and then we seek after something else. Uh, whether you're affluent and you have lots of money or you don't have lots of money, you're always seeking after that new thing that you can do that you couldn't do before. And in the same way, they would seek after wisdom. They would say, you know what? If we just learn more, then society will get better, and then all of our problems will be fixed. Well, we live in a day and age where you can go on the internet, and you can look up anything. You can learn all kinds of things, and yet culture, society, actually seems to be getting worse. And so gaining more knowledge doesn't necessarily fix our true spiritual condition. It doesn't give us hope. It doesn't give us peace. If anything, it causes there to be more clutter in our lives. And so Paul's writing to this culture that was basically like we would consider Las Vegas. They didn't call themselves Sin City, but they were Sin City. And they were Sin City amongst many other cities full of sin. So Paul had planted a church there. He stayed there for 18 months. He left and he went to the church at Ephesus or the, the city of Ephesus, to plant a church there. And while he was there, he got a letter from one of the families who was in Corinth, who saw the disruptions and the problems that were happening in that church, and they wrote a letter, and they sent it through this gal by the name of Chloe. Now, Chloe was someone that traveled on business from Ephesus to Corinth regularly. And so since she was going there, Paul penned this letter that we're reading. He handed it to Chloe, and he says, I want you to take this, 
to the Corinthian church because this is the word. I can't go to them right now, but I need them to read this because I really believe if they'll take heed to what I have to say, that it will help fix some of the issues that they're having. Now, oftentimes what happens is what God wants to do is speak something into our lives and because we refuse to really listen and and take heed, lean in and put it to practice, it doesn't fix problems. And we'll see that because some of the problems do get fixed, but then Paul later has to write another letter to deal with their lack of or overreaction to his first letter. And that's why we have this letter, uh, the second Corinthian letter. But last week we got started, and as we read through, we saw that Paul is writing this, and he's writing it with a man by the name of Sosthenes. And Sosthenes was someone that was in Corinth at the time that he planted this church. But then he also says to them, he says, I'm writing this, verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. The word church is actually the word ecclesia. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes. That is a book about the ecclesiastical search for for what life is really about. But in this book, the the word the church, ecclesia, is actually a, a secular word that just means a gathering of people, an assembly. It was like what we would call our uh, board of aldermen in, in a city. It was just a group of people that were set aside to gather and talk about common day issues. Except what he says is here, to the church of God, the, the gathering, the called out people of God, this is who I'm specifically talking to. So they wouldn't think that he was just talking to the city council or some other group. But he says there, I'm writing to this to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now, that many commentators say this, that it's not actually in the original that it says to be. It just says called saints. God calls us, you and I, those who have decided to follow Jesus, he calls us saints. He doesn't call us, you will be saints. He calls us saints as if we're already there, as if we've already arrived. Because everything that can be given to us in salvation was done by Jesus through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's all been deposited into our bankrupt account. And so we exchange for him basically our dirty rags, our filthy rags, and he gives us his righteousness. And another word for righteousness is worth. We have worth because we come to God through Christ. That's the only worth that we will ever have. But we can add to our faith in him virtue and knowledge and all these things that he wants to, though we are saved, he wants us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not earning it more, not deserving it more, but as we continue to walk by faith, he continues to save us, if that makes sense. It's one thing for him to throw the, the, the life vest out to us or, the, or the, the floaty into the water and drag us in. But if we don't continue to hold on to that life vest as if our lives depend upon it, then it's no longer any good to us. Being saved is a step. It's, it's, it saves us, but we also have this choice of whether or not to hold on. If that makes any sense. God's chosen us. He's picked us. He's opened our eyes to the truth that we need Jesus. But if we stop abiding and trusting in Jesus by our practical everyday lives, here's the reality. We can actually leave our first love. We can forget what saved us in the first place and miss out on the joy that it is to be a saved creation in Christ, a new creation. 
And so Paul here, he says to them, you are called saints. Now remember, he's writing to a church that we're going to look at has tons of problems, tons of issues, tons of division, arguments. They're suing each other. You know, one guy is, he's decided that he's going to sleep with his, uh, his, his dad's uh, new wife. It's not his mom, but it's like his second wife. And so he's in sexual immorality. And so there's some major issues within the church. This isn't people outside the church. This is people in the church that though they are saved, they're living in sin outwardly. And so Paul's dealing with them very heavy-handedly. But before he ever does that, he says, you are called saints. And he's going to tell them, basically, you're saints. Now live like it. It doesn't, you know, God's, God's gracious, but get out of the muck and the mire that you're living in. God has better for you. And so that's Paul's heart. It's broken about their current condition as individuals and as a church of God who represents the living God. He says to them, he starts it kind of with a, a commendation. He doesn't just start in and criticize. He doesn't just start in and say, here's all the stuff that's wrong. He says, I thank God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance, and all knowledge, and even in the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift. God's saved you. He's poured out his grace on your life. He's forgiven you. He's confirmed you. He's given you all utterance. He's given you spiritual gifts so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation or the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, his return. He's done it all and you're just recipients. It's like the guy that wins the publisher's clearinghouse. Somebody shows up at the big at his door, has this big check, and everybody's like, good job, you won. Well, what did he do to win? Let me fill out the thing. I don't even know how you win that. I just know that Ed McMahon would show up on TV and say, here's this big check. Of course, everybody sees that guy on TV and goes, I think we're like third cousins. I need to go see him, right? <laughs> but what, what he's saying here is that if, if you have anything to boast about, he's going to say that. Look at your beginnings. God did it. It's like somebody getting all excited on their birthday, like, hey, I was born. They didn't cause it. You know, God gave them life. Their parents were involved in some way and they, they came to be. It was nothing that that child has done. If anything, you're just celebrating that life has continued and been born. And so that's what he's telling them. He's telling them everything that you have, everything that you are, it's all wrapped up in the fact that Christ did it. He says, verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, God is faithful. If anything, your lives are an example of the fact that God is faithful. So then he starts in verse 10 and he pleads with them. He, the word is beg. Uh, the old King James would say, I beseech you. He's saying, I beg of you. It's as if he's on his knees and he's pleading with them, let's deal with this right. He says, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. He says, God's began this work in you and what you need to know is that he saved you individually, but now he wants to join you together corporately. And the idea is to, to join together is like when you break a bone. 
and the doctor sets it back in place. And then there's a time where they put it in a cast and there's healing that has to take place. But when that bone is set into place, it's a hurtful thing. It's uncomfortable. And, and when it's set into place and that cast is put on there, then they start to knit it together. Now, obviously, you can't sew a bone together. But like when there's a skin, piece of skin, you've ever seen somebody with a burn, that piece of skin is dead and they have to remove it because otherwise it can cause infection to go to the other skin. And then they'll try to salvage what they can and then sometimes they'll take what they call a graft from another part of your body. Hopefully it's not on your face and you've got to get it from a stinky part of your body, right? <laughs> but you take that graft, that piece of skin, and they sew it back in there, it's unnatural, right? But what it does is it brings health to the rest of the body. It's something that has to take place to preserve the whole body. And so what God's saying here is there should be no division among you that each piece of skin that's being knit together should cause there to be health to the other parts of the body. For it has, verse 11, been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. The word for contentions is basically like what we would call a knockdown drag out. They're not just having a slight argument, like I said last week, but they're actually, they're arguing so much that they're, they don't even have, want to have anything to do with each other anymore. And I don't know about you guys, but I think we can all relate to that. Whether it's in family, people we've worked with, I mean, it's just contentions are something that are pretty common, unfortunately. But in the body of Christ, they are not to be there. And, and he'll give the reason why. But in verse 12, he says, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He says, Christ isn't divided. If you guys all have different teachers that you prefer, that's fine. But what they were doing is they were like, we're better than you because we follow the teachings of Peter. Or we're better of you, better than you because we follow Paul only. But what you got to realize is about anybody that teaches the Bible, anybody that's a leader in the church, all of them, if they're following Christ, they're pointing you to Christ. So it doesn't make you any better than anyone else if you follow some other pastor. It's not about that. All of them are trying to teach you to follow Christ if they're a godly man or woman. And so Paul's saying that if you identifying yourself with, I only follow Paul, or I only follow Peter, or I only follow Apollos, if anything, it should cause you to be closer together. It shouldn't cause you to boast or glory against one another. It shouldn't cause division. He says, is Christ divided? And the answer is, no, he's not. If you're following Christ, you will all have unity. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach or proclaim the good news, the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So he's going to talk about the cross. But he says, first, I didn't come to you in wisdom of words or in eloquence. I didn't come to impress or dazzle you by the way I conducted myself. I didn't even come to baptize you. I came to tell you about Jesus. Now this flies in the face if you've ever been a part of a church that says, 
Unless you're baptized, you cannot be saved. Now, baptism is an important part of our walk. It's the first step that we take in obedience of Christ. But if someone is not baptized, that does not make them a non-Christian. That does not mean that they have not been born again. There are certain groups that say there are certain things you have to do to be a Christian. Whether it's get married or, um, or be baptized in a certain spot or in holy water or whatever. But Paul doesn't proclaim this. He says, I, God didn't send me to baptize. He came me to preach. Now, many times when we come to know the Lord, what happens is you want to be baptized because Jesus was. You want to identify with your Savior. But it's not about just being baptized. And Paul's, that, that's just kind of a side note because Paul said it. But then it says there, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words or eloquence. He didn't make it sound schnazzy. Lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. He says this, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now realize that Paul's writing to a church where they're surrounded by people that are every day debating, coming up with new teachings, and they're trying to impress each other by how much they know. And Paul says, I'm not trying to impress you. I'm just trying to tell you the truth. And he says, the cross of Christ is foolishness to the world. Whoever heard of, in order to be saved, I have to follow a Messiah that died. No one. No one says, hey, you know what? I'm going to join this group that no longer has a leader because he died and went to heaven. It doesn't make any sense to us. If anything, we want to follow somebody that's triumphant, that grows, that, that does everything and has a good testimony and, and impresses people. Well, that's not what Paul came to do. He actually came in weakness. Paul wasn't a good-looking guy. Some people say he had a hooked nose, that his eyes leaked because he had some ailments in his face. He wasn't impressive. Many people read his writings and they're like, man, Paul is the man. But if he got up here and sat on the stool, you'd be like, that's the guy that wrote a third of the New Testament? Seriously? He, he's like, really? He writes really well, but what they said about him is when he comes to speak to us, he's kind of lame. He's not impressive. He's ugly. He's really short. You know, he actually sounds really weak. Nobody follows leaders that are weak looking. Uh, the only time that I can think of it is Napoleon. Napoleon had, had some issues. He was short and he was kind of prideful. You know, but in all reality, we want somebody that's more like uh, He-Man or Hulk Hogan. We want somebody like Superman. I'll follow that guy. He can take care of things. Or, or Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris, right? He always punches and it sounds the same. You know, he always roundhouses people. He gets the job done. When he goes down into the well to save somebody, he's going to risk his life. He's going to come back out somewhere or another. But here's the deal. Jesus, in order to save us, knew that we were stuck down in the well, right? So he didn't send in a helicopter. He didn't lower a boom in there or a crane with a hook. He jumped down in the well himself. And in order to save us, he lost his life. He gave it up completely. 
Now to the world, we go, well then, how can the work continue? But that's how it started. Him losing his life for our sake meant that he was dead, but then Jesus was raised from the dead according to the power of God. His very death and then his resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 is going to tell us, proves that he was in fact who he said he was. Because if anyone else came along and died in your or my place, they are not coming back. They can't raise from the dead apart from the power of God. And so our Savior, in order to save his people, died. He's unlike any other person that came to save someone. And so if you tell this to anyone, they go, well, that's foolishness. That doesn't make any sense. And so he says there, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, and this is what God said in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. He says, I can save you, and I don't need anyone's help. And I say that because in the Old Testament, where that is said, Israel was in much trouble. They were surrounded on all sides by their enemies. And, and they were looking for a way out, a way to be delivered from the enemies that they had. And what they were going to do is they, they thought, you know, we could make a pact with the nations surrounding us, the wicked nations that don't follow our God, the Assyrians. We could make a pact with our enemies, and then they could help us get out of this hard time. And what God told them through the pen of Isaiah is, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. God's arm is not too short that he cannot save. You know what he did? He sent the Spirit of God, and the next morning when they woke up, even though they were surrounded by all their enemies, in one night, the Spirit of God went out, and he killed 185,000 of them. Every single one of their enemies that surrounded them were dead. And Israel didn't have to lift a finger. They didn't have to make a pact with somebody else. God can save his people if they will let him. And so in the same way, God takes what we think is a really good idea and he makes it seem foolish because it is. We try to save ourselves and God says, I am sufficient for you. And in verse 20, he asks the question to the Corinthians. He says, where's the wise? Where is the scribe? The scribes were the ones, the historians. They would write down everything that happened in the past and then they would be able to pick it up later and study it and learn from it. And we know that if we don't learn from history, it's doomed to repeat itself. But just because something happened in the past a certain way and God did something a certain way in the past doesn't mean he'll do it the same way now. So even our own understanding of history won't always fix things. He says, where is the disputer of this age or the, the debater, the person that sits around and, and turns around and, and studies philosophy? Where is that person? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And then he says in verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews, he's going to talk about the two groups that he's talking to in the, in the city of Corinth. Jews seek a sign. They request a sign, verse 22. And Greeks, they seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews. This is a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, this is foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, 
Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I read Paul writing, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, I read that and I thought about it all week, and I'm like, how can Paul say that God would have any sort of foolishness in his wisdom? That seems like almost blasphemous, doesn't it? But he's not saying that he thinks God's wisdom is foolishness. He said, he's saying that the world thinks that God's ways are foolishness. And in Isaiah chapter 55, God says that. He says, my ways are not your ways. My ways are higher than your ways. And I love that because they are. They just are. It doesn't make any sense for us. Because he's, Jesus himself said this. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must first lay down his life pick up his cross, and follow me. Now, we think about the cross. What do you think of? Think about a gold necklace with a cross on it. Those are pretty, right? You think about the church steeple. It's got a, it's got a big cross on it. It's beautiful. The light hits it just right. You, know, you just think about an old school town with the church steeple. Uh, you see it on the highway. Uh, there's one in Illinois, I think, where you're driving through. There's this big, huge stainless steel cross. You can see it for 10 miles. It's huge. It's awesome. It's beautiful. But in the culture that Paul is writing to, he's writing to a culture that doesn't see the cross as a beautiful thing. And the day that Jesus was crucified, and in the first century, if someone were to say that you were going to be put to death on the cross, it would be heinous. It would be disgusting. It was the worst way to die. Because the cross was like what we would consider, have you ever seen the movie Green Mile? Green Mile, they take the electric chair, right? They put the man in there, and then there's the one bad guard that says, you know what, I'm not going to put the moisturized sponge on his head. I'm going to leave that out. Let's see what that'll do. And then he sits there and he fries. And it's disgusting. It's, it's gross. I, I wouldn't want my worst enemy to go through that. And, and, and meanwhile, they have a viewing. So everyone can sit there and watch the guy fry like a sausage. Now you think about that, and you think about Jesus. To die on the cross was the most humiliating thing. We always see him a picture on the wall, or we see in some people's homes, they have the crucifix where Jesus is still hanging on it. By the way, he's not on the cross anymore. He rose. But when you see him there, they always have a loincloth on it. He wasn't wearing that. He was naked. He was humiliated. He was beaten. He was scourged. He was bloody. And by the time they hung him on the cross, he had already pretty much bled out. He carried that cross beam all the way until he couldn't carry it anymore. And the guards saw that he couldn't carry it anymore. So they asked the, uh, the Simon the Cyrene, they said, hey, carry that thing for him. And Simon was big enough, so he picked the thing up. And he carried it all the way to the point where they would lay down this beam and they would nail it, they would tie it up. And then they would take his hands and nail a nail through it. They would take his feet and put a nail through both of his legs. Excruciating. And it was done in front of everyone. And so to them, the cross, there were thousands that were crucified every year and they would stand it along the roads in Rome in all this, the Roman cities because it was a warning. If you don't want to obey our laws, this is what's going to happen to you. And so people, of course, would be like, okay, well, I'll obey. 
I see the warning. I get it. I don't want to die that way. And even the Jewish writings in Leviticus says, cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. It was so dishonoring. And so, the message of following a Savior who was humiliated in front of everyone, who was beaten near to death, who was hung on a cross for all to see, who breathed his last breath naked with nothing, with crown of thorns on his head, was mocked and spit on. Who wants to identify with that guy? Jesus said, Greater love has no man than that he lay down his life for his friends. So the hope is not in his death. The hope is that he rose from the dead and we shall also rise in his likeness by the power of God. So in the light of the message of the cross, he's talking to this church who are all arguing about this trivial, ridiculous stuff, who they follow and what this guy teaches. And I think church should be this way. And what what Paul's saying to them is get over it. None of that stuff matters. What matters is that we recognize that our Savior laid down his life for his friends. We, in the same way, ought to. We need to lay down our own opinions, our own agendas, our own reasons for serving people and realize that in order for Jesus to serve people, he had to be mocked. People disagreed with him. They didn't like him. If people don't like you, deal with it. People didn't like Jesus and he was perfect. People don't like me for a lot of the reasons that I deserve to not be liked for. People don't agree with me. It's probably because I'm fallible and I probably said something wrong. But I follow Jesus. And so for me, to follow Jesus means if I upset somebody or offend somebody, then that's going to happen sometimes. If they're aggravated with me, because even if I didn't do anything wrong, I need to love them anyway. Jesus did that for me. I can do that for them. So he says there, where is the wise? Where are the scribes? And the, where are those that dispute in the sage? Has not God made the wisdom of this world foolish? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom, they, we, we keep studying, we keep learning things, and, and it doesn't take us to God. Many of the smartest people of our age, they study and they learn and they go to college and they do all these things and they come up with things like evolution. They come up with things with, let me do whatever I want, it's good. And when God says, you need to follow me, if anyone would gain his life, he has to first give it up. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Pleasure and happiness and joy are not things that are are wrong to have or to seek after. But when we seek them instead of God, then it's an idol. Wisdom is not a bad thing to have. God gave wisdom to... um, To King Solomon, he was wiser than any man, but if we seek wisdom instead of God, it's an idol. And so what he says here in verse 24, sorry, I lost it. Verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. If you want power, if you want joy, if you want wisdom, It can be found in the person of Jesus because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then he says this about them. He says, now knowing that the wisdom of God is better than the the best wisdom that we have, that even if he has a foolish day, that his foolish, most foolish day is better than our wisest day. 
He says, verse 26, let's make this a little bit more personal. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. Think about King David. Before he was a king, he was a shepherd boy. They didn't have him. He didn't get enlisted into the military. And then he, his dad goes, hey, why don't you take some food up to your brothers? They're, they're fighting in this valley. So David leaves the sheep. He grabs some food. He's taking them sack lunch. Takes some food to his brothers who are all in the military. He gets there and who's mocking the nation of Israel? Who's mocking the armies of the Lord? Goliath. This behemoth of a man who can slay anybody he wants because he's a big strong dude. You guys have all heard this story. David and Goliath. David's ruddy. He's small. He's a redhead. He's a ginger. You know, I, that's what I picture him as. I picture him as somebody that's pale, weak looking, not tall, doesn't have any armor. All he's got is a slingshot. And he says, who's letting this uncircumcised Philistine blaspheme our God? And they're going, well, we are. We're bigger than you. What are you going to do about it? He says, well, I'm going to go out there and take him for the Lord. Not because David was strong or mighty, but because he respected the glory of the Lord and he was not going to let anybody blaspheme his God. He was more interested in the glory of the Lord than saving his own life. And so he ran out there, he took his slingshot, buried that rock in the head of his, his nemesis, knocked him down, and he took the broadsword of that guy and he lobbed his head off. Now if you would ask anybody that was watching that whole thing how that was going to end up, what do you think the bets would be on? They'd have been on the big dude. The guy that was seasoned in battle. But I just read it here. God's chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God's chosen the weak things, the things that the world considers weak. God's chosen to use to put to nothing the things that are mighty. And the base things, or the what we would consider uh, the normal things, the generic, the nobody notices things of the world, and the things which are despised even, God has chosen. The word despised there was a common word in that day to describe the, the slaves. They're in a nation where in Corinth, there was everyone was seeking after pleasure. There were more slaves than there were free people. So Paul's writing to those that, the people that think, I'm worthless, nobody can use me. God says, the despised things God has chosen and the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. In other words, if anyone's used of God, it's only because of the God that's using them, not because of them. But of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Those words are all big words, but the righteousness means worth, right standing in front of God. Sanctification, we've been cleansed. Redemption, we were sold into slavery and sin and God didn't just free us, but he bought us back. It cost him. Jesus became that for us. That as it is written, he who glories, and the word means boast, he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. So he's talking to this church who is all boasting against each other. He's saying the only thing that you have to boast about, any of you, is that Jesus picked you, he saved you, and that he's using you at all.
No flesh can glory in His presence. No one is good. No, not one. But God, in His righteousness, in His goodness, in His grace, He saved us. So what do you guys got to argue about? That's what He's saying. And then He's going to get to the point. He's going he's to start sharing about some really hard truths, but He starts there. Your problems as a church, He says to the church in Corinth, is because you guys all think you're something when you're nothing without Christ. And we can fall to that same temptation, that same snare. So let me turn with you real quick to the book of Philippians. Remember, Paul told them, he says, I want you to have this, the same mind. I want you guys to consider yourselves for who you really are. Have the same mind, he said. So in the book of Philippians, in chapter 2, he talks about this mind. He's writing this to a different church, but the same application is there. Verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond slave, and coming in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has also exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Exaltation. Being raised up cannot happen until you've first been humbled. And that's the message of the cross. We are to die to our own ambitions, our own, our own self-image, our own plans. We're, we're to pick up the cause of Christ because he died for us. That should be our reasonable response. And so let me ask you, where are you at with that? Are you having a hard time? laying your life down so that Christ can live through you. Because this church was. And I have an inkling that you guys probably suffer with the same thing. It's hard to lay down our lives because we're still trying to live our own lives rather than laying them down and living for Christ. And I say that from experience. Weekly, daily, I get all aggravated about something. You can ask my wife, she'll tell you. And then afterwards I have to come back and I have to say, I was wrong in that. That was the flesh. That was Mike Mingy. Mike, Lingy, Mike, Mike Mingy is dead. Jesus Christ now lives through me. I'm no longer my own. I was bought with a price. Now it's Jesus. If it's not coming out like Jesus, I got some repenting to do. So let me ask you, where are you? Are you having a hard time laying it down? So as we take communion this morning, we're going to sing a song. And I want you guys to feel free to come up when you want. Get the cup which represents the very real blood of Christ. It's not the blood of Christ, it just represents it. And the bread that we partake that gives us life, the body of Christ given up for us. And as we do that, I want you to consider the fact that when we take this, it's, it's foolishness to the world. Why would we get some grape juice and some crackers and eat it and call that the Lord's Supper? Because we're supposed to do this in remembrance of what Christ did for us. And when we gather together weekly, and we sit down in this place we study God's word, it's supposed to give us perspective. It's supposed to give us the perspective that he's speaking about. 
Because the reality is, without these elements, what they represent, we have no life in us. So the only boast that we have is what Christ did for us. And if we get to do it for anyone else, and they say, hey, good job, all we can say is, well, I'm just doing it because Christ did it for me. I want you to know that He loves you. And so, as you consider it, don't take it unworthily. Spend some time praying. There's some, that, some stuff that God wants to deal with you first, maybe some sin that's in your life. Uh, get right with Him first and then partake. So let's pray. Father, You are good. Your life was given up for us, for me, Lord. And so, Lord, I, I thank you for this remembrance that we get proper perspective of life, what this life is about. Thank you for these who have come out on a Labor Day weekend when they could be doing anything else. Lord, thank you for this time that we set apart to worship you. I pray that you bless all those that were not able to be here this morning, that each one of them would get time to examine their own lives, to consider where they're at in their walk with you, and Lord, in some ways, maybe you're calling them to a new step of obedience. Whether it's a finally laying down something that they've been hard-pressed to get rid of, or whether it's just committing themselves afresh to following you and laying down their own ambitions. Uh, Lord, help us, Lord, to trust you and to lay down the things that we think that we have to hold on to. Lord, whatever you call us to lay down, it's going to be for our good and for your glory. So Lord... I pray that we'd be able to do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.